We're looking together at the book of Job. And as we've looked at this over the last two weeks, we have seen Job sinking lower and lower. And that is all the more striking because of where Job started. When we met him in chapter 1, we were told he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His greatness included vast wealth, impressive integrity, and a big happy family. But as we read on, we saw Job's greatness ripped away. In a series of devastating blows, he lost his wealth, his family, and his health. But not his integrity. In the midst of it all, he refused to curse God. Now Job realized that ultimately, it was God who had done this to him. Yes, we saw there were other factors in what happened. There were human enemies who came and destroyed Job's wealth. There was a natural disaster that destroyed his family. And we've also been told Satan was also involved in Job's devastation. But Job realized rightly, according to chapter 1 and 2, that ultimately the sovereign God stood behind what had happened to him. Even this, Job realized, was under God's sovereign control. Job realized that, but he refused to curse God. In fact, in the midst of it all, he worshipped God. Famous words, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That was in chapters 1 and 2. But last week, when we turned to chapter 3, we found Job in a very dark place. Mentally and emotionally in a dark place. His suffering had worked its way deeper than just his skin. It penetrated into his mind and his heart. He still didn't curse God, but he did curse the day of his birth. He cursed it pretty violently. Job wished that he had never been born. And he went on to say he resented the fact that he was still alive. He asked the question, why, when my life is so miserable, does God keep giving me more days of life? If I was dead, Job said, out of peace, I'd be at rest. But as it is, I have neither rest nor peace. We saw in chapter 3, Job poured out his anger and his turmoil. And his three friends just sat and listened. We were introduced to the friends at the end of chapter 2. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. We noticed last week, these men are genuine friends. They've come to sympathize with Job and to comfort him. That's their aim. That's why they've traveled to be with him. They're not here to gloat. They're here to help. And they start the way true friends start. They try to enter into Job's situation as best they can. They weep with him and they sit with him. They sit on the ground covered in dust, just like Job. They don't march in and try to cheer him up. We're told they saw how great his suffering was. 
And so at first they didn't say a word to him. They knew his pain was too deep for easy answers. And so they waited. And after seven days of silence, it was Job who eventually broke the silence. He poured out all that was in his mind and his heart. And the three friends listened. They didn't interrupt him. Often people say that was the best thing the friends ever did. And that is true up to a point. It would get pretty weird if they never said anything, wouldn't it? Indefinite silence would be unhelpful. It would eventually become unbearable. There does come a time to speak. And today we're going to listen to Eliphaz speak. He begins a discussion between Job and the friends that lasts all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 27. I said it's a discussion, and maybe it's better to say it starts off as a discussion. But by the end, this turns into a stand-up argument between Job and his friends. And there are two things we need to be, be aware of before we begin listening to his friends. The first thing to be aware of, all three friends agree with one another. All three of them are singing from the same hymn sheet. They all see things from the same viewpoint. And they're going to make the same points. So as you read through their speeches, don't worry if you can't distinguish one friend from the other. All of them have the same perspective. And they're going to keep hammering that perspective to Job. And what that means is over the course of the speeches, their main points become very clear. They keep hitting the same notes over and over. That's why it's helpful to read all of their speeches. But it also means we will not be looking together at every one of their speeches. We're going to look at several to get their outlook and their theology. But not all of them. So the first thing to realize is all of Job's friends are united in what they say. And the second thing to be aware of is the friends are wrong. How do we know that? We know it because God says so. Towards the end of this book, God himself finally speaks. And in the last chapter, he says this to Eliphaz. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. That statement from God at the end of the book determines the way we listen to Job's friends. We know that what they say is wrong. But the problem is, lots of what they say sounds so right. If you and I opened our Bibles and read through, putting a tick in the margin every time we agreed with the friends, there would be loads of ticks in our Bibles. So it's not that every sentence these men say is wrong. It's that their overall view of God is fundamentally wrong. Their view of how the world works is fundamentally wrong. And some of their statements are right in certain situations. But they don't apply to Job's situation. Some of what the friends say is accurate up to a point. But it's only half the picture. And so it's very misleading. 
We're going to see examples of that as we listen now to Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5. If you haven't yet turned there, it's page 511 in the church Bible or in the large print 788. And the context is the three friends have just sat and listened as Job cursed the day of his birth. They've heard him complain that God has hedged him in so he can't escape suffering. Can't see any way out. And now we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night. When deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me amid all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be pure than, be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprite from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope 
and injustice shuts its mouth. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven no harm will touch you. In famine he will deliver you from death. And in battle from the stroke of the sword you will be protected from the lash of the tongue. Need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine and need not fear the wild animals. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. This is God's word. And as we look at this, we have to keep in mind God's words from chapter 42. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar have not spoken the truth. But we're also going to find that lots of it sounds right. So as we listen to Eliphaz, we're going to end up saying, yes, but, yes, in one sense, you're onto something, Eliphaz, but you've also missed something. Eliphaz starts tentatively and very politely. He's not pushy, but having listened to Job, he feels he has to speak up. He says, Job, It's what you would do. You've been helpful to so many other people. In verse 3, you have instructed many. You have strengthened feeble hands. You have supported those who stumbled. And Eliphaz says, now you're facing trouble yourself, Job. So allow me to help you. Allow me, Job, to bring you back to basics. What you need to know, Job, is that you reap what you sow. At first, Eliphaz seems to be agreeing that Job's ways really are blameless. In verse 6, he says, Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? But then immediately, he throws serious doubt over Job's blamelessness. In verse 7, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil... And those who sow trouble, reap it. In other words, you always seemed blameless, Job. But we know, don't we, the kind of devastation you have suffered, that sort of thing doesn't happen to truly blameless people. Does it, Job? People who are innocent and upright do not get walloped like this, Job. No, Joe, people who reap this kind of trouble must have sowed some sort of evil. That's how the universe works. Bad things do not happen to good people, Job. That's Eliphaz's outlook. And as their discussion with Job goes on in this book, all three of the friends are going to keep repeating this. If you read on yourself, you're going to keep running into it. 
Now, if we know our Bibles a little bit, we might listen to Eliphaz and think, doesn't the New Testament tell us people reap what they sow? Doesn't it say that somewhere? The answer is yes, it does. In Galatians, Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The Bible is clear. A life of rejecting God leads to a particular kind of harvest. Another example of that in the Bible is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8. Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity. So we might think, maybe Eliphaz is on to something. He sees Job reaping calamity in his life. Therefore, he must have sowed some sort of evil. Mustn't he? Because this sort of calamity doesn't happen to people who have sown innocence and uprightness, does it? Well, in response, there are two things we have to say. First, yes, you reap what you sow. But not all suffering is reaping. If you sow evil, you do reap calamity. But Eliphaz is wrong to think that Job's calamity means Job has led an evil life. Sowing evil does lead to calamity. But we can't just flip the equation round. It is not true that all calamity is the result of evil you've sown. In Job's case, we know he has not sown evil. The introduction to the book told us three times so we wouldn't miss it. Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. Now, Some of us might find that word blameless hard to swallow when we meet it at the beginning of Job. Because we know from the rest of the Bible that no one is without sin except God. But when we did look at chapters 1 and 2, we noticed this word blameless is not telling us Job is sinless. It's telling us he had integrity. He did not hide sin in his life. He didn't hold on to it. He confessed it and he dealt with it before God regularly. And he spent his life turning away from evil. And so God declared Job to be blameless. He was not sowing a life of evil. He was sowing a life of integrity. Loving God, following God, and giving God authority over his life. And so Job is proof that not all suffering is reaping. It is possible to experience calamity that is not the harvest of an evil life. Eliphaz has a view of the world that is too cut and dried. It's too neat and tidy. Yes, he's right that bad things happen to bad people. But he's wrong to stop there. Because Job is proof that bad things can happen to good people as well. They can happen to people God is pleased with. Those kind of people can still suffer calamity. People who have no hidden sin in their lives, no unrepented sin, they can still face devastation. 
It's a very simple point, but it's incredibly important for us because it will influence how we react to suffering in our own lives. You and I dare not have the expectation that obeying God is going to make us exempt from suffering. Sometimes that idea is taught in Christian churches. But it is a false idea and Job proves that it's false. And in an even greater way, Jesus Christ proves that it's false. The perfect son of God went through the worst suffering. And it was undeserved. It was unearned. And as followers of Christ, we dare not think a holy life will make us exempt from suffering. If we live with that outlook, our faith will go to faith will go to pieces when suffering comes to us. We'll find ourselves thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Well, the biblical answer is you may not have done anything to deserve it. Sometimes in this life, innocent people suffer. Ask Job. Ask Jesus. Now, their innocent suffering was not pointless. We've seen that Job's suffering has a purpose. And we know Jesus suffered for a purpose. It was to reconcile us to God. In the grand scheme of God's universe, suffering is never pointless. But it may be undeserved. This is something we'll come back to in future weeks as we keep listening to Job and his friends. But for now, there's another point to notice. Yes, Eliphaz, you reap what you sow, but not all suffering is reaping. And second, yes, Eliphaz, you reap what you sow, but some reaping comes at the end. A moment ago, we noticed that Galatians talks about sowing and reaping. Here's the full quotation. Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please their flesh from the flesh, the flesh will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. We've seen Eliphaz is wrong to say that your suffering is always reaping the harvest of some sin you've been sowing. And Eliphaz is also wrong to think that all reaping comes during this life. When the Bible says you reap what you sow, it's telling us in the end you reap what you sow. The fact is, a life of rejecting God may be pretty peachy until the end. And a life of loving God might include severe suffering until the end. Eliphaz thinks we reap what we sow during this life. And that is often true, but it is not always true. Certainly here in Galatians, Paul is talking about what happens in the end. When you and I have sowed for a lifetime, then we will certainly reap either destruction or eternal life, depending on how we've sown. 
And Jesus said exactly the same thing. We read it earlier. The wheat and the weeds, he said, grow together until the harvest. And he explained it. At the end of the age, those who do evil will reap eternal fire. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So if you and I look at the state of someone's family or their bank balance or their health today, and if we take that as a sign of whether they're righteous or evil, if we do that, we're going to make some very wrong judgments about people. Well, maybe as Job has sat there listening to Eliphaz, He's beginning to have a skeptical look on his face. And so Eliphaz goes on to say, look Job, God told me this, so don't argue. That seems to be the point of this secret word he talks about in verse 12. It's a claim from Eliphaz to have mystical, spiritual insight. A word was secretly brought to me. The trouble is, you and I have read the end of the book, or at least one verse from the end of the book, and we know Eliphaz is not speaking from God. Actually, he's saying things that aren't true. We've seen his words do contain elements of truth, but they also twist the truth. They leave out vital bits of the truth. That is what false teaching is like. Usually, it's close enough to the truth to sound plausible. That's why it's so dangerous. If false teaching was all a bunch of total nonsense, we'd be unlikely to fall for it. But it trips us up sometimes because it's almost true. And here, Eliphaz claims what false teachers often claim. He says he's got a hotline to heaven. He's received a secret word. The idea really is to shut down any argument from Job. Don't contradict me, God told me. But judging from what God says at the end, the devil can whisper in people's ears too. He can work through disquieting dreams in the night. And so those are not the things you and I are to trust. We trust God's written word. We measure every other word against the written word. We do not go along with something just because it's introduced with the words, God told me. If something contradicts God's written word, or if it goes further than God's written word, then we know God didn't tell them. It may have been Satan, it may have been their own imagination. It may have been the curry they had for dinner. But it wasn't God who visited them in the night. Well, in the verses that follow, Eliphaz basically repeats his point about reaping and sowing. That is his diagnosis of the situation. You're reaping what you sow. But beginning in chapter 5, verse 8, Eliphaz gives Job his prescription. Verse 8 But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly, 
He sits on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Eliphaz says, Job, let me tell you about God. He knows what's going on. And he deals with crafty and wily people. And Job, we have seen, haven't we, that's probably what's going on in your life. God has caught you in whatever it is you've been up to. You have me fooled. You had Bildad and Zophar fooled. But God wasn't fooled. But Eliphaz says, don't despair, Job. There is a way forward for you. Humble yourself. Submit to God's discipline and he'll fix this for you. Verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven no harm will touch you. In famine he will deliver you from death. And in battle from the stroke of the sword you will be protected from the lash of the tongue. And need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine. And need not fear the wild animals. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field. And the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing is missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. The key verse here is verse 17. Eliphaz says, we all know what's going on here, Job. Your suffering is God's discipline. It must be. You must have been living in defiance of God and in his love, God is getting your attention. These catastrophes in your life have an important purpose. God has sent them to turn you back to him. This suffering, Job, is God's correction. So come back to him, repent, and he'll put everything right again. He'll heal you, he'll restore your wealth, and he'll give you plenty of children again. You will live the rest of your years in full vigor. So go on, Job, just repent. Confess your secret sin, turn from it. And God will end this discipline you're going through. Is Eliphaz right that God disciplines his children? Yes. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Those words are quoted in the New Testament as well, in Hebrews chapter 12. And they're making the point that a good father doesn't just sit and watch his children as they wander off into evil. He brings discipline to correct them. Sometimes painful discipline. And the Bible says God is a good father. Sometimes he sends hardship and suffering to wake up his wandering children. Cause them to turn back to him. And in those situations, painful discipline is good. Hebrews says it produces a harvest of righteousness in our lives. 
But not all suffering is discipline. We know not all suffering is discipline because Job has done nothing to deserve discipline. God considers him blameless and upright. Yes, we know there's a purpose to Job's suffering, at least in part, it's to show Job and us that God is enough for us. We saw that in chapter 1. So we could say Job is being trained in some sense. He's being taught. But we may not say Job is going through corrective discipline. And so Eliphaz is wrong to say, just repent, Job, and God will fix all this for you. Job does not need to repent. He's not a perfect man. He will admit that himself later on. But he is in the right with God. God has made that declaration over Job's life. And Job has not wandered away from God. When devastation hit Job's life, if anything, it was due to his holiness. It didn't come because of any sinfulness or backsliding in his life. Remember how in chapter 1, God singled Job out as the best man he had. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So as we listen to Eliphaz here, we have to say, yes, God does use suffering to discipline his children, but not all suffering is discipline. Whenever you see a brother or sister suffering, it may be God's discipline or it may not. So please don't march up and tell them to repent. Don't tell them to search their hearts for the sin that has brought God's discipline on them. Unfortunately, people do say things like that sometimes. But it just shows they have a theology that is much too small. Their theology has no place for undeserved suffering. And so their theology has no place for the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you see that? On the cross, God was not disciplining his only son. He was doing something much more earth-shattering. He was making it possible for lost human beings to receive forgiveness. That forgiveness came to the world through the undeserved suffering of God's Son. So there has to be a place in our theology for undeserved suffering. And we have to be aware, God may continue his work in this world through undeserved suffering in my life or in yours. Sometimes men and women who are reconciled to God and walking close to God go through suffering that is unconnected to sin in their lives. It's not a sign they're reaping what they've sown. It's not God's discipline for any waywardness. It has some deeper purpose than that. You and I might never know what that purpose is. But we need to see undeserved suffering has a place in God's purposes. 
We might not like that. We might struggle against that, as Job is going to struggle with it. But we have to see that it's true. When we think of God and his ways, we need a bigger picture than the picture Eliphaz has given us. And so we need to focus on the cross. Jesus died for a world that was not right with God. He died for a world that loved darkness rather than light. A world dead in its sin. And he went to the cross as the perfectly righteous one. That was the cost of our salvation. You and I were not born blameless. We were born in sin. We did not deserve to be loved and accepted by God. Before we could be right with God, we needed a substitute to pay for our sin. That's what Jesus died for. And many of us here have put our trust in Jesus. And so amazingly, because of Jesus, God sees us as blameless today. And we need to be aware, now that we are right with God, God might continue to further his purposes in this world through undeserved suffering in our lives. Just as he did with Jesus. When we belong to Jesus, we may follow him in that way. In God's mercy, he has clothed us in pure royal robes. And as we wear those robes, we may suffer. And God may never tell us why until the end. So will you trust him? Even when your suffering makes no sense to you. Will you trust the God who sometimes works through undeserved suffering? We're going to respond to God's word by remembering, first of all, Jesus' undeserved suffering. And then our own privilege to serve God in royal robes that we don't deserve. Let's sing, you are beautiful beyond description. And then, King of Kings, Majesty. (laughs) 